Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Bodies in the Bayous. I'm Morgan. And I'm Gretchen. Today, we are going to bring you Season 1, The Texas Killing Fields, Episode 17, Genetic Genealogy and DNA Bring Long-Awaited Answers. So today, we're going to talk about a case that is not considered part of the Texas Killing Fields, but in doing um, research on the Michelle Garvey case, which we uh, brought to you in an earlier episode, um, there was a lot of documentation out there about Michelle Garvey being buried with Harris County, John and Jane Doe. And it made it very confusing to try to figure out what was going on there. And, and finally, in tracking down some information, I found out that the coroner's office or the medical examiner's office um, has to keep remains for a certain period of time to try to track down any relatives. Once those remains are unidentified, then um, according to the law at that time, those remains needed to, would be buried. So they had to keep them for roughly up to three months. Lots of coroner's offices and places would keep them for longer or why they were trying to do an investigation. Michelle Garvey uh, remained at the Harris County Medical Examiner's Office for a period of time. And during that time, there were also two other remains brought in, or remains of a Harris County um, female and a male. When they decided to go ahead and bury those remains because they didn't have any information in any of those cases, they buried them in the same plot, basically at Potter's Field. So that's why those cases are not connected at all. But when you're doing research on either one of these cases, they'll come up, you know, and so that's the confusion. So when we were doing Michelle Garvey's case, this case came up and what we found out was that um, there were these remains that were found in Harris County and then last couple of weeks ago, um, all of a sudden there was a big break in the case. So um, the uh, remains that were found in Harris County of John and Jane Doe were, um, they were found on January 12th, 1981, when a man was out um, walking his dog and for a morning jog, the dog came back with a bone and the police were called. The dog then led the police to uh, the remains of a couple a male and a female in a field near Walsall Road in Houston, Texas. The female had been strangled while, um, and the male, the female had been strangled and the male had been beaten to death. Um, the female was between the ages of 15 and 25 wearing a ponytail and the male was gagged and tied up. Um, the couple have been left in the field for a short period of time. And so due to that, they were able to make a sketch of these two. So basically they took them to an artist who made an artist rendering of what the couple would have looked like. And then they really didn't have any information. Um, police looked into this case as a possible, maybe drug connection, um, of that port, they put out in local media, you know, for information on, on them. Didn't know if they were a couple. They knew that they had been killed at the same time and placed in the field at the same time, but they didn't know how the two individuals were related to each other. 
So basically the case goes cold and then they are eventually buried in Potter's field. So at the same time that Michelle Garvey's remains were removed in 2011 for DNA testing, so were the remains of these two individuals. And still they ran their DNA, they got DNA for them. And then basically that was uploaded to like missing persons websites and stuff like that. And still there was no answer. So what has happened is you have the genetic genealogy coming along, a lot of people getting involved in that. And recently a genealogist who had taken over this case started to put together the tree of both families. Um, so they knew the remains of the male and the remains of the female were not related to each other. So they started to build family trees for the for both of these individuals and they contacted a family in Florida and asked a woman in Florida if she had a family member had gone missing. And the woman said yes, she had a brother, Harold Dean Klaus. Klaus and she had not seen his brother or his wife since 1980. He had been a carpenter, and in order to make a better life for his family, they had moved to the Houston area. At the time, the genealogist was having the same conversation with the family of Tina Gale Lynn, who was Harold's wife. So the couple had written to the family for several months after they had arrived in Houston and then the letter stopped. It was months later that the family was contacted by some women who had Harold's car and was willing to return it for a price. The women, the family agreed that they wanted to take back Harold's car and the women gave the family the impression that the couple had joined a cult and left their families, went to California and didn't want anything to do with them. The women had claimed that they were running from a cult, that they were trying to escape from a cult, but cult and that's what they needed the money for. So for a long time, the families just believed that their relatives would show back up. They eventually did contact law enforcement, but they law enforcement pretty much told them that if your family has the right to cut off all communication to them, that if they actually had to join a cult, then that was the end of it. Um, and so law enforcement really wasn't helpful at all with this. Um, and that kind of ties a family's hand because if, if you can't get a missing persons case on these individuals because the belief is that they have essentially left of their own free will. Right. And they're adults too, so that yeah. complicates things. They're adults. They have every right to do that. Um, and so the family just kind of was left waiting you know, hoping that um, Harold and Tina would want to reunite with their family. The um, genealogist talked to them for a little while and then, you know, um, Harold's sister asked the question. So if this is my brother and his wife, what has happened to their daughter? Come to find out that the couple had a young daughter, roughly about one years old, named Holly Marie, and there was no sign of her in that field. You know, they did not have the remains of a young child. And so there was no indication that anything had happened to her. No one missing Heidi's description has showed up 
you know, police have done some research and from what they can find out, nobody's like dropped off a child back then saying, you know, that her parents never showed up back for them. And um, so it begs two questions. One is where is Heidi Marie Kloss? So, um, and then the second question would be, is the possibility that this couple was actually killed in order to take their child? That's kind of what kind of pops into my head mm -hmm. with them is, uh, <clears throat> was it just an opportunity to, you know, kidnap a child and, you know, get rid of the original, the birth parents, right? you know, and it's the child out there and, you know, I mean, with DNA, it's possible that she could be found. It is possible you that know, she couldn't be found and what's, if she's alive. Right. And what is very sad about this is that Harold's mother is still living to this day, too. And so, you know, the hope would be that this has really jump-started this case, that we can start to find some answers for her so that maybe she has a possibility of knowing what has happened to her granddaughter. Because, I mean, this is just so very tragic, but also that so that Heidi has a chance of knowing what would have happened to her. There are photographs of Heidi. She's incredibly young. Um, and so it would be hard to say what she would look like today, but she would be 41 years old. I am so sorry about that. Morgan actually just pointed out to me that I have said Heidi and her name is actually Holly Marie Kloss. She would be roughly about 41 years old today. And so there's a couple of, of things that definitely come in here with this. We know that he worked in construction <clears throat> and that she, um, his wife, Tina was a, a home, you know, stayed at home with the baby. Um, the the sad thing about this is though because we're talking about a couple who was in the area for such a short period of time and then disappears any information about what had ha happened to them really is is probably lost but you know the the one hope would be that you could try to track down people who would have known him in the area would have known other people that they um possibly were close to they would have left they weren't living out of their car they were living out of either an apartment or a house so they would have left suddenly and that would have been cleaned out but it this weird connection with those women you know who claim that they're running from a cult also is is something that you know you have to ask yourself so if if these women were involved in the murder of um these two then did they go to the step of actually cleaning out their apartment and all of their belongings and packing those up too in order to hide this crime or did they were they legitimately in a cult in california came across the car and then decided it was a good use and so you know the person who maybe committed these crimes maybe did they go to the california area and then you know, lastly, you just always have to ask yourself, does anybody know a couple who in the 19, in 1981 or 82 showed up with, with a young child with a that they didn't have 
originally. I mean, it makes you wonder if she's in the Houston area or if she was taken back to California because you remember I asked you too, I'm like, what kind of cults are in Texas? And you were like, no, they're coming out of California, which is a really odd connection there for uh -huh. me as well, you know? Um, well, and I think they're and to have that kind of information. And I mean, I know it's easy to run car registries and stuff like mm -hmm. that to know where, you know, because he did buy it from. He bought it from his mom, mom yeah. right? So, mm -hmm. but when you show up and you pay somebody $1,000 for the car back, you don't ask a little bit more questions. Like, that kind of bothers me too. Mm -hmm. I guess, you know, one of the things is we don't know really how many questions the mom did ask at that point in time because, you know, she may forget all of what she yeah, asked. Sure. And they may not have released any, all mm -hmm. of that either right. in police you know, files. You know? um, but like, where's the child? I'm sure it came out of her mouth. <laughs> you know, where are they? Well, she certainly was asking where her son was, mm -hmm. you know, and, and was told that, you know, he didn't want anything to do with with her i'm sure that was heartbreaking and stunning at that point too you know to to find out that your child but then you just have to ask yourself this question too how do they figure out i guess they figure out through registrations or whatever that you know the car belonged to this woman and that's why they contact her but it's just to me contacting this woman and taking the car to her seems like an extra step to try to cover up the fact sure. that these two people are and that's brazen yeah that surely is and so you have to ask yourself where were the bodies discovered and they didn't want the family to start looking in the houston area at the possibility that their loved ones were missing so they made up this story and and went there to try to you know i mean again it does seem like a little case of like something you see on Matlock or Law and Order where somebody comes up with a plan to cover this crime up. But well, and this happens, you know, more often than we really mm -hmm. are aware of too. But you if know. you're, if you're wanting to raise that child as your own, and so you're putting yourself in that position of being the parent and you've gone as far as to kill two people, to murder two people in order to get that child, I would say that you would do anything to protect that child's identity for as long as you possibly could. Sure. So, so maybe you would drive a car to Florida and make up a lie and tell them that you were running from a cult, you know? I mean, there were cults in in texas i mean you know not not any that i can name off our, the top of my head the only one i seem to be able to come up with in california right now is unfortunately you know the helter skelter yeah <laughs> you I know mean, um, and i mean you did have that stuff in waco but that was years later that was quite a bit years yeah. later but i mean christian cults and other cults can show up pretty much anywhere sure so um I haven't heard of one that's a baby snatching cult, you know, so I'm thinking more. That's like somebody, I mean, you just think like if you're going to throw theories out there, right? That's somebody extremely desperate in, for a baby, right? right? I mean, and if you have that motherly instinct to be that way, you're going to do whatever you can, right? You know, I don't know. It's just weird. The only other possibility out there is that the child was killed at the same time and her body just, you know, was unfortunately dragged or, or taken True. away and not found she with the parents. Small. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, my hope would be that, you know, Holly is alive to this day and that they law enforcement can find some answers. So, but 
you know, what we would say to you is that if you knew Harold or his wife, Tina, during the 1980s, please contact the Harris County Police Department. You know, I mean, the Harris County Sheriff's Department, give them give them the information that you know. And at this point, I would tell you that any bit of information would be important. This is a case where anything about Harold and Tina's life in the Houston area would be vital. Yeah, it could be something small, too, like he was on a job with us for two days and never came back. Right. Something that simple. Because that could help them narrow down a better timeline. It also could help narrow down people that they would have known so that they could start looking at the possibility of did those families show up with a child. So even if you think, well, oh, gosh, I did know that guy, you know, but who cares? You know, it was only for a couple of days or something like that. Those couple of days fill in a couple of days. Yeah, absolutely. And so that could give people the answers to closer to where he was living, what they were doing, those types of things. We know that this is, this case right now is a very active case. And so there's not any information that we can get from law enforcement about what's going on, because at this point in time, the fact that they know who these two are is a huge break in the case. Sure. So hopefully- In a recent break. In a very recent Mm -hmm. break, yeah. So hopefully we will be seeing more information. We'll cover this case again at a later time. But again, I just have to implore people, if, if you were here in the 80s, if you knew them, if you ran across them, you know, please- reach out to the Harris County Sheriff's Department and give them the information that you have because the tiniest bit of information could make a huge break in this case. So next we're going to cover a case that is part of the Texas killing fields um, and has a major break in the case right now. So um, we're just going to jump into it. Um, Susan Eads was a beautiful 19-year-old girl with light Uh, brown hair and brown eyes. She was Caucasian. She was known by her family and friends to be a happy-go-lucky spitfire. People who knew her said she was always somebody who was out to have a fun time. She was born in Mississippi in 1963, and her family lived in the Seabrook, Texas area. So Seabrook, again, is um, outside of Houston and um, but on the coast. So a little bit more, not on Galveston Island, but a little bit more of a coastal town. Um, and Seabrook, um, she had graduated from Clear Lake High School, which, um, so Seabrook and Clear Lake kind of back up to each again, other. Again, that's that whole Nassau Road area. Right. And essentially during that time, Nassau Bay, which we've covered some other cases in that area. It's, mm-hmm. it's all, you're talking a three mile stretch. And I believe at this time that would have been the, the closest high school because I don't even think Clear Creek was built, and neither and we know the new one that's out there wasn't. Okay. Was it uh, Lutheran South or whatever it's called? So she uh, worked at several different uh, bars in the area. Um, she worked at a place called Charlie's Bar and a place called the Pickley Pear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, both these are on uh, Nassau Road. Um, So she had gone to work one night at uh, Charlie's Bar on Nassau Road, and after work, her friends and co-workers decided to go out to another bar um, for dancing, a place called uh, John Brown Saloon, in in roughly about the same area. 
At while they're at John Brown's saloon, a man approaches Susan and asks her to dance. Her friends and coworkers said she seemed very uncomfortable with this individual and that that was really out of the realm for her, that she um, loved country Western music and just really um, to them had never met anybody that she didn't seem to, you know, get along with. And, but she, there was something about him that made hit her. Almost makes you if she ever had like a run in with him before or something while at work right. or seen him do something, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, you know, in interviewing her friends and coworkers and other people at the bar that evening too, they didn't seem to know who he was. So they could, they didn't recognize him, but I think you're on the right connection that maybe she had a run in with him at some other point in time or seen something. Mm-hmm. And while she's at work. So, um, so she kind of walks away from that. Um, her friends describe him as kind of an unkempt cowboy looking man with a uh, cowboy boots, cowboy hat and a um, mustache. Um, so they leave the bar a little bit later. Um, they drive Susan to her car and, um, in the parking lot, and then she got into her car, but she never made it home. She was discovered in a field off of Nassau road one and Elam street near the space center. Um, and then her 1976 Chevrolet Chevrolet Monte Carlo had been parked strangely in a parking lot near um, Yacht's boat store. Okay. She was discovered naked and had been strangled with the straps from her bodysuit. She was brutally raped. A day after the discovery of her bodies, um, the uh, Houston, sorry, the police department actually contacts a uh, psychic. <clears throat> Noreen Rainier, who was here from West Virginia to con- uh, consult the Webster police on a different case. Um, she was taken out uh, to the area where Susan's body was discovered, was able to describe um, how, where Susan's body was laying and how she was laying. Um, she was given uh, bits of, of Susan's clothing and um was able to kind of tell police a few more things. Investigators later stated that she got some things right and she got some things wrong, but the information that they gave that she gave them was not really helpful to their case. Investigators spent years looking for a killer. They so focused on several different suspects. Um, they even questioned men, uh, the men charged with the kidnapping of Shelly Sykes. And I know we haven't covered that yet in um, an episode. It's actually going to be in our next episode. But they felt like there were enough similarities in that case because both of these women were in the safety of their own car, which I think for me is one of the scariest ideas because when you get in your own car and you're headed home, you feel very safe. Sure. You know? It's security. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and so the idea that you could, you know, either be run off the road or your car could somehow be disabled in order to get to you. Or in this case, we really don't know, you know, if um, if she pulled over or, or was run off or, you know, if something happened to her car in order for her to have to uh, to stop. Um, 
Police certainly did not release any information stating that her car had been disabled in any way, but we just don't know what, what would cause her to actually stop before getting home. Investigators also looked into um, Edward Allen Shore. He's given the name the tourniquet killer. Um, they actually delayed his execution in order to talk to him about this case. Uh, Shore is a serial killer who we will cover um, a lot later too to talk about him, but he is known to strangle his victims with items of their own clothing. And so um, they delay the execution, they get his DNA, and then rule him out during uh, due to DNA, and um, and then he was eventually put to death uh, in up in Huntsville, Texas. Even with all the man hours spent on this case, they still could not find out her killers. Investigators went back to the evidence and it was in amazingly good condition. And this is actually surprising because in a lot of these cases that we tried to come across and, and see what happened, you know, in the Calder Field cases, we find missing evidence. In so many other cases, we found that the police departments have either lost or destroyed the evidence or that evidence was kept in a storage area where the humidity the, right it wasn't preserved correctly uh -huh. you know and and amazingly down here you know we have the problem with not only the humidity but the bugs i mean we have moss and stuff like that that will eat clothing and eat through cardboard um and all of that you also have hurricanes and flooding conditions and stuff so the fact that they were able to have this evidence but also that the evidence was pretty much kept in great condition was a real big boost for this case. So they pulled the black bodysuit that she was wearing and they were able to get DNA off the black bodysuit. That DNA was loaded up in CODIS, which CODIS is the offender database system that takes DNA from convicted individuals that uh, across the United States that um, are told they have to put their DNA into that system. And it depends on different states have different laws of who has to, uh, to do that, but um, so CODIS has a large amount of DNA. However, it did not allow police to find a suspect in this case. There were there were literally no hits. So in the last year with the advances in genetic genealogy, an abundance of cases being solved with this technology, the Texas Rangers decided they weren't giving up on this case and they took the DNA and submitted, submitted it for a genetic genealogy profile. The genealogist quickly got a distant cousin match and was able to build a tree to find a person that they thought could possibly be her killer. The name they came up with was Arthur Ray Davis. Sadly though, Davis had been dead for years. And so how were they going to prove that it was Davis who had killed her? They managed to track down one of his children and his son voluntarily gave DNA to help solve this case. And the DNA came back and indeed proved that she was killed by Arthur Raymond Davis. You know, the one thing about this too is um, Davis was killed in an automobile accident about four months after she was murdered. Mm -hmm. And you do wonder, were there any other victims before her? 
but you know how many victims were saved because that happened you know that's kind of an ironic thing for me you know it's almost like karma yeah i mean i think that's a great point we don't we don't really know what we do know is that he stole his girlfriend's vehicle and was killed in a high-speed automobile accident um we don't know that that was on purpose but i actually think that my personal opinion is this that was a drunk narcissist who just felt like he was invincible mm -hmm. and you know the automobile accident is just i know a lot of people want to believe that you know it's they're so distraught over what they've done they just you know get in an automobile accident and kill themselves for me personally i don't don't necessarily believe that that's always the case here i don't believe that's the case either and plus you're in a relationship with somebody mm -hmm. you're going about daily normalcies you know um so if, a few things about him one is he bears a striking resemblance to the drawing that people gave of that picture of the cowboy so the question becomes he was in this area um he was a boat captain um how didn't people recognize that this was davis but he could have been offshore for months he could have been you know really you know and again this is one of those cases where unfortunately it's taken so many years to solve and the only way, way that you've solved it is genetic genealogy so so much of the employment records are missing because there is one question that comes back and forth too is one of the things that was talked about in this case was that he was a boat captain and we know that susan actually did like a party boat um where she was a waitress on a party boat for a while and she came back and said she wasn't gonna do that anymore because it made her incredibly uncomfortable you know the things that went on on the party boat and one of the things the family's now asking or, or looking at is did she possibly come across him is that why she had this weird reaction to him but then one of the other other things here is his girlfriend who he stole her car worked at that bar where Susan was last seen. Hmm. So again, when you come back with a police sketch and you have this sketch and you're questioning all these people, why does nobody recognize him? Yeah. Especially the girlfriend. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're going to be like, uh, Oh, uh, crap, that looks like, you know, my old man or whatever. Because we'll put those up on the website. We'll put sure. the, these two pictures of him up on the website. But the drawing and the picture of him, I'm just like, wow. It, it just, there's such a striking resemblance. And the only thing that, you know, I could come up with is maybe he, he didn't go there very often. But again, why the employees didn't say, oh, that's so-and-so's boyfriend. Um, and who knows? Now I've told you I don't think it was guilt, but that, that he got in the car. She was extremely uncomfortable. She worked with her and knew that this was, you know, her boyfriend, and he's trying to come on to her or dance with her. It, right. That might have been why. Might itself, have, you yeah, know? might have made some connection there right. that she didn't want somebody else's man. You know, again, just because so much of this, you know, we're only finding out for the, that genetic part of it um you know so much of that has been lost because this guy he was not somebody who had a criminal record he was not somebody who was on the police radar he was not somebody that anybody brought to their attention his name is not in that file mm -hmm. and so there was no reason whatsoever to look at him and then this comes up and it's like wow but then your other point that you made is could he be connected to anybody else well, Susan 
bears a striking resemblance to both Heidi Faye and Laura Miller. But what we know about Heidi Faye is, yes, she was known to work in bars in this area. Um, and so could she have run across him? Yes, there's always that possibility. But it is very widely believed that Heidi Faye, Laura Miller, and Audrey Cook are killed by the same person. And both Audrey Cook and Laura Miller are killed after, you know, he, Arthur, has died. And right. so that that we can definitely say you know he they're not they're not connected to him but we do you know you kind of run across these other cases that you know have this similarity i mean we know that nina klug was another person who you know was in the safety of her car probably a little bit farther away than this but again we just have these cases that you really wish there was DNA on those cases to possibly compare to this person. All I can say is at least now, police have his DNA. And so if there is evidence that's being tested in other cases, then maybe um, they'll be solved. Too. They'll be solved mm -hmm. too. But with so many of the other cases that we've run across, that's probably not likely because I think a lot of our other cases are going to be cases that unfortunately you just don't have DNA on. Mm -hmm. And it's not like, you know, um, his family was like, oh, yeah, you know, he made this big confession or left this big letter behind or we always suspected or something like that. Nobody suspected anything about this individual. No, well, and he didn't have to live with it that long. No, he didn't. You know, I mean, to where you might actually get guilty feelings, you know? Mm -hmm. No. Okay, so Sandra K. Uh, Ramble or Romber, and I find her name spelled two different ways. And so um, she, on October, October 26, 1983, she was a 14-year-old girl when she was last seen in her home in uh, Santa Fe, Texas. Sandra had been attending modeling school and hoped to become a model. She was Caucasian, had brown hair and brown eyes with a very distinctive mole on her cheek. She had been baking biscuits, and when her father came home, he found the oven still on with the biscuits in it. The front door of the house was left open. Her purse and her coat were left in the house, and her father reported her missing, but police believed that she had simply run off. Some reports say that she may have left the house to run to the store. I find that hard to believe because biscuits don't take that long to cook, and also her purse is left in the house literally there is that is basically all that we have on this case her body is never found and sadly her case gets a little attention i know and it's it's a weird case that to consider a runaway also for me you know like you're in the middle of cooking something that takes 10 minutes you're right. not gonna just leave to run to the store or you know you might, but you're going to wait for them to be done because uh -huh. they're definitely going to be burnt by the time you get back if you leave them unattended. Right. Um, you know, I mean, biscuits are not, you know, and she's obviously skilled enough that she knows how to make a biscuit. So, you know, um, this is not like a process that you couldn't think to yourself, oh, I don't have butter for the biscuits or jelly for the biscuits. I'll run to the store and get that and come back. By the time you do that, you just don't have any time. Plus, the other thing that really gets me about that is, so if you think that she was going to run to the store, again, that's not a runaway, right? But then secondly, 
she doesn't take her purse. So how's she paying for whatever she's getting at the store? Right. And, and lastly, the front door is left open, not just like the, the front door is left unlocked. The front door is left open. Yeah. And and not only that, if like, she couldn't have been gone that long before her dad arrived either because if the biscuits were unattended for that period of time it's going to start burning and smoking and a fire alarm or something's Uh going to start going off like there's definitely going to be some kind of right there's no mention that the house was full of smoke or anything like that exactly um you know what's scary to me is again this is a person who is in the safety of her own home and is somehow taken out of that house and that's that's that scariness where how how did that happen it's almost like the boston strangler albert albert uh DeSalvo. right you know how he would go knocking on doors and you know pretending to be a photographer and get all these you know ask all these questions and want to take pictures it's almost the same thing right you, know, you do wonder if there's opportunity some, and yeah. to get to them you do wonder if there's some connection with the modeling agency if that's how you get her to open the mm-hmm. door but i mean we also know from living in this area you know occasionally there are those times where people knock on the door and ask us for, you know to buy a security system or you know and in the 80s there were people knocking on doors asking you know for purchases and stuff did somebody see a young vulnerable 14 year old girl at, at home alone and just make that happen or were they stalking her in the first place that's it too you know like when we were talking about this i was like or were they already stalking and just did it you know what Uh i mean like i don't know it's just weird it's a very and to be treated as a runaway case is kind of awkward to me too i it you know and after so many years you know there's just there's nothing there you know um and what's a a 14 year old just gonna run away with no money you know, I mean, that's young. Right. It's, it's not like they, I don't know, just weird. Um, so sadly, there really just is not, is not a whole lot of information on her case to, to find out. You know, unfortunately, her family did not get the same attention that some of the next couple of cases that we'll talk about actually got. Um, when we talk about Santa Fe, Texas, though, we are talking about a very small town, a rural area, much smaller in the 1980s than it is today and it's still small today yeah and still very rural this Mm -hmm. is not you know although it's between houston and galveston and this is when when we've talked about cases that are along that um highway six corridor this is where santa fe texas is is along that highway six corridor but you know it's just and it's a place really where families for generations kind of settle down Mm -hmm. into is that, and it's still like that today. Right. The very, you know, everybody knows everybody, small ranching community area. And this, this really shook that community, you know, that, that she's gone, but there's just nothing happening on that case. Just weird. So. All right, everyone. And with that being said, uh, we are going to end today's episode. Um, We highly encourage anybody to um, email us or reach out to us on Facebook. If you have a case that, you know, you might want to see us cover, 
Um, we're always, you know, open to that. Um, you can reach us on Facebook at Bodies in the Bayous, or you can email us at Bodies in Bayous at hotmail.com. Um, Gretchen, anything you want to add to that? No, thanks so much for joining us today. Have a good day.